We're in Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua, what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly and they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us. Now therefore you are cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. 
So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, here we are again, reading a passage of scripture that, Lord, for, for some of us in this space, seemed really long and confusing. Wondering, Lord, what on earth could you possibly have to say to me, to us, in a time like this? And yet, Lord, we praise you that you always speak. That the word of the Lord stands forever. That no matter what, Lord, happens around us, you are faithful and good. And that your word, that even though written thousands of years ago, has a very particular message for each of us today. And so I pray, we pray in Jesus' name that you would ready our hearts and minds. That this would be a time, Lord, where our eyes see what you want us to see and our hearts feel what you want us to feel and our ears hear what you want us to hear. And that, Lord, we would be changed because of the time in your living and active word. So, God, we ask for your spirit to come. Make our hearts ready. Make this space ready. And speak through this very broken instrument that all of us would hear Jesus. All of us. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, kids. We're going to need your help here, so I hope you're ready. Okay. Oh, I'm going to need someone else's help here too because this isn't working. Is the uh, clicker working, guys? No. I can't do this. I need the kid. I need the kids to see this. So, there we go. I think that worked. All right. How many of you have seen this movie, Shark Tale? Come on, I see the big kids in the room raise their hands because this is an older cartoon movie, right? So this is one of those movies that uh, I watched with my kids when they were little. So you younger kids, this is one to put on the list. I give it maybe a B, B plus, right? It's not like my favorite movie, but it's worth, it's worth watching. But I'm, gonna t- I'm basically going to spoil it for you today. So uh, if you haven't seen it, it's been out for a long time. You waited too long. All right. So... It's a, it's, a, it's a movie about this fish called Oscar. And Oscar keeps telling himself that he's the bottom of the food chain. It means that he feels like he's the lowest man on the totem pole. He doesn't like where his life is at. He wishes things could be different. Can anyone in here relate to that? Right? He wishes things could be different. And so he starts to do things that like, are supposed to get him better, improve his life. He does things like he starts gambling on, on uh, races, Right? That's, that's one of the things that takes place in, in the movie there. But he starts to accrue lots of debt. And as he's accruing lots of debt, his, his life goes from bad to worse. And we, we all know what it's like to do things, whether it's gambling or, or, or betting our lives on relationships or taking risks in different ways. We all know what it's like to try to improve our lives by doing things that are maybe a little underhanded, hoping that they're going to work out for the better because, hear this, We've waited a long time. 
And it seems like the things that we've tried aren't working. So we're going to kind of skirt it a little bit. Bend the rules. Do that thing. Right? His, he's down on his luck until one day uh, something changes for, for Oscar. He is actually being uh, pursued by the mob boss, is actually the mob boss's son, who happens to be a great white shark. What else would they be in a fish movie, right? And they come, and they're going to either get the money back from him or they're going to eat the fish, because that's what sharks do, guys. They eat fish, right? So he's going to eat the fish, but then out of nowhere, this anchor comes and falls on the shark, and no one sees the anchor. All they see is the shark down, squashed, and Oscar standing over him. And all of a sudden, Oscar becomes Shark Slayer, right? He has a choice in that moment to tell the truth or to own the lie and try to live into it. And he chooses to own the lie and live into it. And so he goes and he starts from bottom feeder. He's now top of the food chain. He is super popular. He has all the attention. He's getting the girls. He's getting the money. He has the fame. And how do you think it's going to work out for him? Not so good, right? Not so good because as he soon finds out if you're living a lie and people, especially as people start to figure out that you're living a lie, you need to build layer upon layer upon layer to that lie to try to hide yourself and protect yourself. And all it does is dig a deeper hole for you to live in. It's actually quite a miserable experience. It's a recipe for disaster. And the reason for that is because integrity matters, friends. Integrity matters. Or to put it differently, blessing and truth are inseparable. When we're going after blessing, but we're trying to get it in a way that is full of deception, i.e. not truth, we're only getting what looks like. It's the facade of blessing, but it's empty and foundationless. But when we go after it in truth, and then we have that blessing, what we have is a blessing that lasts, even though everything around us fades away. This morning, as we continue in our study through the book of Joshua, that we've been calling fighting for our inheritance or learning to lean into the treasure that's already ours because of Jesus, we're going to unpack this very principle together. And as we've been seeing since September, we've been in this for three months now, as we've been seeing since September, God has a lot to say about the power of his presence about the, the reality that life changes when God's with us. So we can be strong and courageous no matter what because he's with us. That we can fight for one another. Why? Because he fights for us. That we don't have to be afraid to open our eyes to the reality of the spiritual realm because he lives in the spiritual realm and he rules the spiritual realm and the physical one. That we can do things like build Ebenezer's to remind ourselves of the places where God has broken into our lives with great grace so that we don't fall back into old patterns of living and behaving, that Gilgal circle life around and around and around. No, he wants to roll it all back so that we can walk in freedom in our lives. He wants us also to learn to fight alongside of Jesus, not against him. So much of the time when God draws near to us, we're quick to move past the reality that the first person on his radar that he wants to change is me. Right? It's always me. Even if he's, got me, he's coming to me because he wants to do a great, a great thing through me or through you, 
The reality is, reality is he wants to change and bless you first. That's why well, one of the ways that we're learning to fight is through worship. We, we worship until the walls come down. We learn together, we're learning to, to give God our whole heart so that when fear comes knocking, when self-protection is our temptation, we worship him and we get a really big picture of who he is and we're reminded of all he's done and what we find there is a very faithful, loving dad. And as Tommy preached last week, what we find is our banner. Jesus is our banner. He is the one who's gone before us. He is the standard that we rally to. He's the one who's won the victory for us already. That's where we've come from. This is where we're going today. Our theme is simply this. Integrity matters. Blessing and truth are inseparable. Three points. The cost of deception, the necessity of integrity, and the blessing of truth. So first, the cost of deception. When God moves like he has in our passage and like he's been doing throughout this book of Joshua, when he moves with power in the lives of his people and on earth, there are really only two ways that uh, we negatively respond to him, right? And that is through fight or flight. When, when God comes close and he disturbs our comfort or he makes us, he makes us feel like, oh my goodness, I don't know what's about to happen, or, uh, or he confronts us in sin, fight or flight are the two ways that we can respond. And we see both of them in our passage for this morning. Fight is what happens in the first two verses of our passage of Christian Red, where all the kings come together and they choose to fight against God's people. Now, we take a pause from there until next week, right? It just gives us that information and then it... Our text switches attention to the Gibeonites, which is what we're about to do. But before we do that, something good to just notice here. As they're rallying together to fight, oftentimes in our culture, in our world, and in our hearts, we say this. Look at all the people who are standing with me. We build our our team, right? Look at all the folks that I have on my side. That must mean I'm okay. And we forget this principle. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We forget, again, that the one person that God is first and foremost interested in dealing with is me. So it doesn't mean that we're always going to be standing alone. It doesn't mean we're always going to be standing with a lot of people. What it means is what matters is what God says, not how many people are standing with us on our side. Right? So as they gather all together to fight, all of them were on the wrong side. Israel was all alone, and they're about to learn a tough lesson there. But what God wants us to see, at least from the beginning, is that it's, it's actually not about the team we're building. It's about the team he's leading. It's about the leader. It's about him. And we need to be willing to hear that when he comes after each of us, all of us. So fight is one. Flight is the other, and flight is what the Gibeonites do. Now, they don't actually run away, but what they do is hide, right? They hide in deception, The Gibeonites heard and they feared. What do they hear and fear? They heard about Yahweh God. They heard about what God was doing to his enemies. And they said, oh my goodness, like we're afraid of what God's going to do. So we are going to resort to deception. I'm sure you heard it as Christian was reading the things that they did, right? They got crumbled bread, old bread, to make it look like they were on a long journey. They had ripped up clothes, rags, to make it look like they were on a long journey. They had wineskins that had bursted, burst, not bursted, burst, because they wanted to make it look like they had been on a long journey. So in all these ways, they choose to this ruse to convince the Israelites that they lived far away and that they weren't a threat so that they would come into a covenant with them. 
And what does it cost them? What does it cost the Gibeonites? Did you catch that in our passage? For them to live, uh, to, to, to uh, come under this ruse and to, to deceive, it cost the Gibeonites generations. To use Joshua's word, it says you're cursed by your own words. Because remember, they said, we're your servants. Well, guess what? That's exactly what they became, indentured servants to Israel for generations. And Joshua says, some of you will never be more than just woodcutters and water collectors. Generations when what they could have done and should have done is to actually consider Yahweh. Who was another one in the promised land who was part of the enemy, the people of God, who considered Yahweh in his heart even as she trembled over what she heard? Do you remember her name? Rahab. Rahab. Rahab considered the heart of God, the kindness of God, and she banked on that kindness and won because that's who Yahweh is. That's why he was coming. It wasn't about destroying all these people. It was about establishing the reality that he rules and that he wants the world back to himself and for himself. So they made this huge mistake and it cost generations, right? But Israel made the same mistake. They too failed to consider Yahweh. They entered into a covenant without actually considering who they were and who Yahweh was. They thought they were doing the right thing and they made a big mistake. And what does it cost them? Part of the promised land. Did you miss that? These cities that they were living in, now they, uh, uh, that the Gibeonites were living in, were gonna stay cities for the Gibeonites. They lost part of the promised land. And they were also gonna have to care for the Gibeonites and protect the Gibeonites, as we'll see next week. They, it was gonna cost them a lot because they too failed to consider the heart in the direction. They failed to go into the presence of Yahweh, where, remember, he says, be strong and courageous and do not fear, for I'm with you. They failed to go into his presence and there hear his voice and understand what he wanted for them. And it cost them the same generations of that curse. They had to live in it as well. This is often our mistake too, isn't it? We often it's our mistake when we don't know how to listen, when we're in a new circumstance or situation, or when God's growing us and, and he's put us in a place to stretch us and we don't know how to listen well for this particular thing. And we, we make mistakes, right? Or when, when, we want, when we do not want a different outcome, when we're so convinced that this has to be the way and we don't know, we don't want to hear something different from God, so we kind of drown out with a lot of noise what God's voice might actually be saying. Or when we're hoping for more than we see. So it's the opposite side, right? Like, I don't, I don't want this to be the way. I want something else. And so I'm going to, again, kind of push through because I don't want to hear it. Or like the Israelites were doing in our passage when we're too distracted, hear this, by good things. When we're too distracted by good things. They were doing the work of God. God had called them to come in and they were supposed to take over, go to battle, take over the promised land. That's what they were doing. They were faithful. They were, they were obedient. They were trusting. They marched around the city of Jericho with those walls. Those walls came tumbling down. They were doing the right thing. But they didn't take the time to step back and actually listen to God in this particular area. 
and they made a mistake. They made a mistake. Friends, I've, I've recently had a friend come to me and say this to me. He said, Will, in, in, in all the things that God's teaching us in this season of our church's existence, with regard to knowing him more deeply and walking with him in deeper intimacy and watching what he's doing, and as exciting as that is and as wonderful as that is, this friend said to me, you haven't always done a great job of speaking to those who are struggling with this idea. That your heart for them and his heart for them hasn't always been clear. And he's right. And if that's you, I want you to hear me say I'm sorry. If I have failed to communicate to you a heart that says you are welcome here no matter where you are on this path, we love you, we see you, we want you, then please hear me say it today. And also hear me say this. Now that I'm aware of this, I'm going to be very sensitive to it. Because I don't want anyone to feel like you don't have a safe space here to work out your stuff with the Lord according to his timing. That's the heart of our God, friends. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We have to be willing, friends, to hear these things, to grow together. Even when we're doing things we're excited about and that God is moving powerfully in, we have to be willing to take the time to hear from God together, which is something that Israel didn't do. And I see this oftentimes in so many different ways. I've given you some examples here. Premarital counseling. I do a lot of premarital counseling with folks. And in those premarital counseling times, unfortunately, sometimes we get to this place where it's the reality is they're in two different places spiritually. To be able to say, like, hey, I don't think you guys are equally yoked. And you know what oftentimes, most oftentimes happens when I say, I don't think you should get married and I can't do your wedding. Most of the time, people do not listen. And it's hard because you have someone in front of you that you love and you want to be with and you want to spend the rest of your life with and you've gone down this road this far. What are you supposed to do? But then we put ourselves in covenant relationships that God says are going to be full of strife because you're not equally yoked. And they are that. But if, if that's been your story, please keep listening. Please keep listening until the very end, because we're not done. Moving. Oftentimes we do the same thing when it comes to moving. We say this, you know what? I, I, I've got this new space. I've got this new job, rather, and I need to find a place to live, so I'm going to find a place to live that's near my job. You know what I tell people all the time? You need to live where you're going to live, not live where you're going to work. If you can live where you're going to work and live, it's the same place, hallelujah. But you need to live where you're going to live. You know why? Because if you live where you work, you don't live where you live. And so you know what ends up getting in the, in the way? Lots of space. So if you're 
If your work is 30 minutes away and you live there, but you go to church 40 minutes from there, guess what you're not going to be doing very long? Going to that church. You got to live where you want to live. Do you see? We, we make these huge life decisions without actually leaning in to one another in community and making space to listen and being willing to surrender to God what is God's. And what God says is his is every ounce of us and that he loves us. Another example, taking a new job. How many times have you and I in our lives taken a job that is going to move us somewhere or that's going to even just promote us up? And we don't take a second to pray about it because we say a promotion is more money and more money is only good, so therefore I'm going to take the promotion. We don't take the time to step back and say, what is this promotion going to do for me in terms of my time? In terms of my relationships, what is this extra money going to do for me in terms of my heart? We don't take time to do that when really God's calling us to go and seek his face there. So there's plenty of places in our own lives where we make the same mistake. And what it costs us so often is the very thing we're going after. The deep desires of our hearts. That's what it costs us. That brings us to our second point. We just talked about the cost of uh, deception. The second point is the necessity of integrity. From the very beginning of God's relationship with his people, when he calls Abraham to be a people for himself, he says, I am Yahweh El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. I'm the God who is over all. And so I am, therefore I will. I am this God, therefore uh, Abraham, I am going to bless you. I am Yahweh, therefore, Abraham, I'm going to give you many children, I'm going to give you uh, land, I'm going to give you prosperity, I'm going to bless you in all these ways so that through you I can bless the whole world. And we know where that story goes. He says, I am, therefore, I will, nine times in 14 verses. And what I want you to see there is that from the beginning God's saying, integrity matters because that is who I am, not just what I do. Let me say this to you very, very clearly. God speaks, his word is true, not because of the impact of his word on our world, but because it's true. God's word is true because it's his. And because it comes from him, it impacts our world and does exactly what he says every time. At creation, there's nothing. And God says this, let there be. And guess what happened? There was. And what was it? Good. Why was it good? Because God is good. Because God is good. And God speaks. When God speaks, it happens. Because there's absolute integrity between God's word and what it accomplishes. Between who he is and what he says. None of us have that kind of integrity. None of us. But he does. And that's a beautiful thing to consider. Because that means what God says could be trusted. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He gives us opportunity to find safety and wholeness in his presence. So we see that at creation. We also see it at redemption. Remember the Apostle John's uh, gospel when he says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. 
He's making that connection very clearly for us. He's saying that when God talks about redemption, it's already done. It's done. In fact, it says in uh, Ephesians, it says, before the foundation of the world was ever laid, God came up with this plan. What was that plan? In Jesus, the world would be redeemed. Which is why he says, in the beginning was the word. It was God's faithful word that would be lived out through his son. God is the word in the flesh. And we see the same thing happen at the end. The very end, fast forward all the way to Revelation chapter 19. When, when the Son of Man comes back, riding on his white horse, and friends, is a picture of judgment. It's a picture of God saying, all of us have made choices in our lives, either for Jesus or against Jesus, and we're going to get what we asked for. He's going to honor our request. And do you remember what Jesus has tattooed on his leg? His name. It says the word of God. From beginning to the end, what God is showing us is integrity matters because the only reason why we understand what integrity is is because of who God is. He is his word. His word doesn't change. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Amen. But this is also why God hates deception, right? Because deception is, is, a, is a lie that's all about him. And the, uh, the writer of Proverbs talks about lying as an abomination. It's an abomination, meaning it's taken something that is, something that's true, and it's twisted it. It's, it's twisted into something that is, that is monstrous, that is deformed. It's telling us something about the character of God when we lie. When we lie to one another about the world, about each other, about life, we're saying God isn't who he is, and that's simply not true. But in the same way, when we lie, we're saying something about ourselves that, listen, is also not true. It's also not true. So many of us are caught in what the writer of Proverbs talks about as hatred. Whoever hates disguises himself or herself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. Going backwards, deceit in our hearts, right, is us disguising ourselves with our lips and it's our hatred underneath. When we choose deception, what we're clearly communicating is there's a hatred in here and that hatred always goes two ways, three ways really. It goes up towards him, it goes out towards others. But what we don't realize is it's also going inward towards ourselves. When we live in that trap, we live in a lie that says, I have a right to be angry and bitter because he doesn't love me and I'm not worth loving. But what God actually says is, I am love. And the only reason you were ever made is because I wanted to love you. Hallelujah. Some of the ways this plays out in our, in our families and in our lives are things like white lies. How many of you, no, don't show your hands, just think about it. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, how many of you uh, lived in a house uh, or currently live in a house where you practice things like white lies? What do I mean by white lie? You know, the, the little white lie, it's, it's not a big deal. I'm just going to twist the, tr- the truth a little bit. When I was growing up, one of, the, one of the things we did in our family was little white lies. And one of the reasons for that is because it was rooted in deep insecurity about who we actually were. 
deep insecurity, lots of self-hatred, lots of shame, lots of guilt, generationally, because of the way that my parents and their parents and we, the homes we grew up in, the way we were treated, the things we were taught to think about ourselves. And so when there was an opportunity to make it a little bit better, we did. One example of that, I took karate in elementary school and middle school. The reason for that is because I was getting bullied like crazy. So my dad's like, let's get you in karate, get you some self-defense. And I made it all the way to a brown belt with two stripes, and then I quit. Because suddenly I was too cool. Karate's loser. I'm too cool for that. But you know what we told everyone? What my mom and, and we told everyone? I'm a black belt. I'm a black belt. I was one stripe away from being a black belt. Don't get me wrong. I was one stripe away, and I will do some damage, okay? Right? But, but seriously, like... I told everyone I was a black belt, and you know what that did to me? Every time, shame. It was bragging. Look how cool I am. Look how great I am. I'm a black belt. But the whole time I knew it was a lie. And so it was designed in my mind and heart and in our family history to make us better, fuller, richer. It was actually a trap of shame. Little white lies. If, that's, if you can relate to my story at all, please hear me say this. No such thing as little or white lie. All there is is lie. And if you're tempted to do that, please hear me say there is a much better way. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why God has you here today. Terms of agreement, what does that mean? It means this. In a lot of marriages, here's what I see. Here are the things we're allowed to talk about. Here are the things we're not allowed to talk about. Those are the terms of agreement. In other words, I'm going to be honest and real and vulnerable about me here because I'm confident in these things. But in these things where I feel insecure, where I feel naked and exposed, where I don't want to change, we're not going to talk about those things. Why is that a lie? Well, first of all, because it's not practicing integrity with who you actually are. But it's also not practicing integrity with what your marriage is about. And quite honestly, what all of our friendships are about, what relationships are about. It's about us taking the risk to speak the truth in love to one another. Did you hear what I just said? Speak the truth in, what was that word? In love to one another, right? Giving each other space, but walking together, because these are the very reasons why we're in one another's lives. This is why the the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesians, when we speak the truth in love to one another, we grow up into Christ who is our head. Did I hear an amen? Amen. All right. So God hates deception. But let's talk about our third point. This is our final point for today. So you see the cost, right, uh, when we choose to live a lie. But you also see the, the, the need for integrity. But what I want you to see more than anything else this morning, what I believe God wants all of us to see, is the blessing of the truth. Now, what you see here is a picture of Oscar with his girl, Angie. He, Angie was, was his, could have been his girlfriend the whole movie, but Oscar was too down on himself and believing a lie about himself the whole time, that he was a loser. If you believe you're a loser, you're not going to see the people in your life who think a very different way about you. And so recognizing that lie is really important. Calling it into the, into the light of truth is really important. 
So what Oscar ends up having to do by the end of the movie, when Angie's life is in danger because the shark, the mob boss shark is about to eat her, he has to confess the truth, right? But he also stands up for the mob boss's son, so he does something really cool. And at the end of the day, he has to expose, tell the truth about what he's done. And now everybody knows, and he goes back to being a worker at the car wash. But you know what he also has at that point? Freedom in his soul. Light and life. And Oscar is a new fish, even though the circumstances that he once pointed to as evidence of him being a loser haven't changed. What's changed is his heart when he realized the trap that he was in and how he had been set free. And now suddenly, it wasn't about changing the circumstances. It was about living with a new heart. The same thing is true for us, friends. Where is there blessing in our text when you see the Gibeonites and the Israelites cursed for generations? It's easy to choke on that, isn't it? Like, oh my goodness, I don't see blessing here. Well, let me point out to you specifically the very last verse, where it says, but Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of Yahweh to this day. Did you miss that the first time we read it? Because the altar of Yahweh is the place where justice and mercy kiss. The altar of Yahweh is the place where his people and every watching eye, including the nations, the Gentiles, who were also welcomed at his temple, the court of the Gentiles. You could bring sacrifices there too, right? Every watching eye saw two things at the same time. I'm worse than I thought I was. I'm more broken and deceived. I'm more full of guilt and not self-aware than I thought I could be. And that hurts. And yet at the very same moment, they also see and we also see that God is better than we thought. Because while I'm welcome to this place where sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice is made, I also see the heart of the one who's accepting those sacrifices on our behalf. Let me spell it out for you a little bit. The wood on the altar for the burnt offerings. Burnt offerings were offerings made for guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. These sins that so often go and they plague us. It's weight that we carry. It's how do I get rid of this? This is who I am, not just what I've done. I don't know how I'm going to change. Everyone knows it. Everyone around me believes it. Or I know it and no one else sees it and I don't know what to do with it. No matter where you're at on that spectrum, this is the place where the Israelites and the watching world got to see every day justice and mercy kissing. Coming together at one place because of the burnt offering, the substitutionary offering, where every person who made a sacrifice, don't miss this, knew at the bottom of their hearts that even though there was forgiveness right there, something feels off here. How is a bull or a goat or a sheep enough of a sacrifice for me Am I not worth more than two pigeons? 
Am I not worth more than even a big bull? Does not God think more than me, of me than cattle? Why do I have to keep doing this year after year? When is enough going to be enough? The wood at the altar. What about the water at the altar? Realize that the water at the altar was there for the priests to wash their hands and their feet as they were making these sacrifices. It started off during the tent of meeting when they were wandering through the wilderness as a basin because they could carry that, right? And so they would come and wash. But when they built the temple, which was permanent, it turned into what is called the sea. The sea. What is God trying to communicate when he calls the washing place, the place where the temple, where the, where the priest would wash themselves so that they could intercede for you, the sea? And he says, here's what I want you to make it, seven and a half feet high, 15 feet in diameter, so they could carry 12,000 gallons of water. What is he communicating to his people with each successive generation, but that his grace is enough? The vast depth and height and width and breadth that is the forgiveness that God has come to give to his people. It's always been the way. Is it any wonder then that one of the psalmists would write this? We sing a song based on this psalm. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked He's saying this, I'd rather be a Gibeonite than an Israelite who's dwelling in wickedness. When I get to be a doorkeeper in your house, I see every day this great drama play out where I can see the reality of my sin and the overwhelming response of God's mercy and grace even there. And that's just the Old Testament. Because, friends, it gets better in the new. It's not just a basin or a sea. Ezekiel talks about it like a river that only gets deeper and wider and deeper and wider. And do you remember where that river starts? In the temple. Where in the temple? under the throne, the mercy seat of God, to put it differently, in God's presence. And it trickles out, and it goes deeper and wider, and deeper and wider. Is it any wonder then, when Jesus comes, he says these words, I am the water of life. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink, and out of you will flow Rivers of living water. What is he saying? When we come to him in faith, his presence lives here. And from us, we become Ezekiel's vision. We become the place, the starting point. Jesus in us, his Holy Spirit in us, becomes the place where rivers of living water come out for all to see what? That very same reality that I was worse than I thought I was. Broken, guilty, shamed, trapped, deceived. But I'm also more loved and cherished and forgiven than I could ever imagine. 
It's what the prophet Isaiah says of the coming Messiah. He says these are going to be his words. He's going to call them out to us. Let all who are thirsty come and drink. Without money, there's nothing to buy here. Come just because you're thirsty. And what you're going to find is a Savior who can not only satisfy, but wash and cleanse and make new. Friends, where in your life, even this morning, does God want to challenge the view you have of yourself, of him, of his world? Where is he calling us, you, me, us, to walk in integrity? Because he's a God of his word. And his word says this, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son. Every Christmas we gather to celebrate this reality that the God of heaven put on our skin, cried our tears, suffered our sorrows, died our death, but was raised to new life so that in Christ we too can live different lives. Beloved, this Advent, let's walk in the light as he is in the light. Let's let him have his way with us and let's watch as his transforming love brings complete wholeness to every area of brokenness in us, in our city, and in our world. Amen. Let's pray. Abba, we love you. And we are grateful for you. And we thank you for this story, Lord, that invites us to be real and honest in ways that are not comfortable, but in ways that we need so that we can walk in your light, so that we can walk in your truth, so that we can walk in your love together. So God, we're just asking and praying right now. Would you do the very thing we just spoke about? Would you show us any place, any relationship, any idea, any thought where, Lord, we are not living in the light? Would you love us right there? Your love gives us strength. Your love gives us courage, God. Your love gives us life. Pray that you'd help us to walk in that together. That you'd be honored and glorified in this place, Jesus. Our eyes are on you, Lord. Our hearts are on you, Lord. Have your Jesus' name we pray.